0: My heart hath expected reproach and misery, and I looked for one that would grieve together with me, but there was none, and for one that would comfort me, and I found none. Psalm 69, 20. Welcome to The Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Chloe Langer, here with my regular guest, Joe Heshmeyer of Shameless Popery and Holy Family School of Faith. Welcome,
1: Joe. Thanks, Chloe.
0: So today we are going to be discussing the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. When we're recording this, we are ahead of schedule because we'll be celebrating tomorrow. So we're recording on Thursday, but when you hear this, it'll be on a Monday after the celebration. But it's a timeless devotion, and I don't think that yeah, there's a bad time to develop a devotion to the Sacred Heart.
1: Yeah, so why don't we begin by talking a little bit about what the background to the Feast of the Sacred Heart is. I mean, the obvious place to start is the quotation with which we started the hour mm-hmm. um from psalm 69 which it talks about the heart of christ um and that's the manifestation when we're talking about the agony in the garden when he's looking around and seeing no one there to comfort him remember he's fully god and fully man he has a human heart and so when we talk about the sacred heart it's a recognition of this humanity of christ mm-hmm. and so i think it's an important place to begin that this is something very scriptural in its basis um, it's an extension in an obvious way of the Incarnation, but it's also a way of thinking about the Incarnation that's very biblical, by thinking about the heart of our Lord.
0: Yeah, I think there's usually a misconception that this is a devotion that started with St. Margaret Mary in the 1600s, but this is something that's actually been around since, yeah, Christ's humanity. And we read about it in Scripture, in like the Psalms, like you pointed out, but also in the Gospels, where we get a really beautiful picture of it with John the Beloved and his in his story with Christ.
1: Yeah, so John the Beloved, of course, at the Last Supper, he is resting on the breast of Christ. And he, so he's he's lying there next to the heart of Jesus. And so it's an incredible image. This is John the beloved, and he's connected with the heart of Jesus. And so it's a very evocative image. There's both the obvious intimacy of him resting on the chest of Christ, but then the fact that he's so close to the heart and that he is a beloved. And so he's the apostle who's associated with this devotion. In a special way, I would say. Mm
0: -hmm. I was at a women's conference this spring and Sister Miriam James was there and she started off her talk by talking about how it's her vocation to rest on the heart of Jesus and Mm -hmm. how she's like diving deeper into the meaning of being the beloved. And so, yeah, I just love that. The mental picture of like John resting his head on Christ.
1: Another place to look, you know, as you mentioned before, we tend to associate this feast with St. Margaret Mary. Mm -hmm. But St. Margaret Mary, okay, for those who don't know, she lived from 1647 to 1690, she's a 17th century saint very much post-reformation and in the midst of what's called Jansenism, and we'll talk about that but this feast even though we associate it with her because she's the one who wrote about it and had great apparitions of it before her St. Gertrude the Great who is unfortunately not a very well-known saint in my experience um, also has an apparition of this and St. Gertrude the Great is very much a medieval saint She's alive in the 13th century from about 1256 to 1302. So imagine about the time um, that Aquinas is writing. She's alive. I think she's 18 when he dies. So it's it's that kind of span of time. Very much scholastic, very much medieval. So it's a very different time and place in the life of the church. And yet there's already this sense that things are maybe getting a little too cold.
0: So do you want to share a little bit about the apparition between St. John the Beloved and St. Gertrude?
1: Yeah, so St. John the Beloved appears, I believe it's on his feast day, he appears to St. Gertrude. By this point, she's already had apparitions of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And so she starts asking John questions. And specifically she's asking, well, you know, you were lying on the chest of Jesus. Did Did you feel his heart beating? And he says, yes. And she basically is like, why didn't you write about this? Like, why didn't you record this in scripture? And the response that she gets is my mission was to write of the eternal word. But the language of the blissful pulsations of the Sacred Heart is reserved for latter times. That the time-worn world, grown cold in the love of God, may be warmed up by hearing of such mysteries. It's a powerful response, and I think it really captures why the Sacred Heart devotion becomes important. It's not that we're learning anything new, in the sense that we always knew Jesus had a heart. We always knew that he was fully human. But this renewed emphasis on the sacred heart of Jesus, on the humanity of Christ, in a visceral, even emotional way, is something that a world that had gotten too intellectual and too cold, in a way that it was detached from the full humanity and emotionality of of even Christians where everything could be reduced to a syllogism, when it becomes like cold and legalistic and about judgment and not mercy and all of that, whenever that starts to happen, it seems like God steps in and is like, but I have a heart that beats. Right,
0: right. And if this was like a message that's relevant in the 1200s, imagine, and we'll get to this later, how relevant it is today, where we're still separated from the fact that God has a heart that beats for us.
1: Yeah. So that, in a nutshell, is St. Gertrude. Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, we already teased out a little bit the next major figure we want to talk about, which is St. Margaret Mary, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque. And so she's alive from 1647 to 1690. So to put this in a little bit of context, at the time, the church is going through a crisis called Jansenism. And it's it'd be a whole separate podcast to tease out all the nuances therein. But basically, the story is this. It, particularly in places like France, which had seen a lot of Calvinist influence, because this is also the period in which John Calvin's influence is enormous in mm-hmm. Western Europe. And Calvinism is all about predestination, and God as just judge, and sovereignty, and all of that. And it's often missing um, a whole lot of discussion of mercy, I think especially in the 17th century. Even in these Catholic areas, they would be influenced by these Jansenist, or by these Calvinist influences. And so Jansenism uh, is in some ways a Catholic response to Calvinism that is altogether too Calvinist. And it's based, like I said, on kind of the Calvinist air they were breathing, as well as certain interpretations of Augustine and Aquinas on predestination. But it became very cold. Uh, Port Royal, the uh, monastery or convent where it was very It's kind of a hub of Jansenism in Mm -hmm. France. There's a a famous quote said about those nuns, I believe by a pope, where he said that they are pious as angels but proud as devils.
0: Huh, that's fascinating.
1: And so is that kind of uh, pharisaic, kind of legalistic, kind of all about justice, not about mercy? Uh, You know, if you take that impression, that's more or less what a lot of the 17th century saw. And in the midst of that, Jesus appears to a young woman, St. Margaret Mary, tells her all about his sacred heart. And that's, that's the crux of, of what this message is. It's another reminder of the mercy of God. Uh, you know, you'll sometimes read in the prayers from this time period where people might feel very comfortable going to Mary because they're very cognizant that she is a human like them. But they're almost afraid uh, to go to Jesus because he's the just judge. And they're aware that they're not worthy to go before him. And so he's reminding them, like, no. He also he wants to intercede for them before the Father, and he he loves them, and you know he came to die on the cross for them. He isn't just standing idly back, uh, judging them from afar. You see this
0: in the reaction Margaret Mary is living in a convent at the time of her apparitions at the Sacred Heart, and the reaction of her superiors and of her fellow sisters is very much like push, you know, Jesus is the just judge. He doesn't come to us with a sacred heart where she would walk along the convent hallways on the way to just different errands throughout the day. And they would throw holy water on her because they were afraid that she was, you know, being appeared to by the devil or like that there was something that this isn't a, this isn't true. Jesus surely wouldn't tell us about a sacred heart.
1: Yeah, it is remarkable. You know, I think flash forward a couple centuries, also in France, St. Therese of Lisieux. Yeah. The uh, inside of her convent, you have these nuns one in particular who was making herself a victim of divine justice. And in response to this, Therese said she'd rather be a victim of divine mercy, of yeah. divine love. Yeah. And so it's a reminder that yes, God is a just judge. And we can't lose sight of that. But if we let ourselves be defined in our understanding of God... The fact that he's a just judge, we miss more than we see.
0: Yeah, this we also find in the life of another sister, Saint Faustina, who we've talked about in previous episodes of the Catholic Podcast. Who comes again with this this message of mercy, this message that Christ has a heart. He asks for our consolation.
1: Yeah, I think if you view the Divine Mercy Chaplet, you know John Paul II and Faustina as closely related as kind of the saints of mercy, Mm -hmm. tied to this whole tradition with the Sacred Heart. You can really see a sort of um, revitalization in the church of this constant need to proclaim the mercy of God.
0: Pope Innocent Sixth instituted a mass that honored the Sacred Heart of Jesus back in 1353 AD, and a universal feast was instituted in the Catholic Church in 1856. So in terms of like the liturgical calendar, this is still pretty recent.
1: It is pretty recent, but you can see that it kind of caught on. It slowly caught on. There was actually there's an interesting story involving a plague in France that St. Margaret Mary had been Uh, responsible after her death through like through her intercession the the city was saved led france to really have a devotion and that devotion at the insistence of the french bishops eventually spread um, across the church there are 12 promises attached to devotion to the sacred heart we'll get a little more into what it means to be devoted to the sacred heart but let's talk a little bit about those promises so what does jesus promise to saint margaret mary
0: so yeah there's 12 promises like you said. He says, I will give them all the graces necessary in their state of life. And he's talking here about people devoted to the sacred heart. Um, I will establish peace in their homes. I will comfort them in all their afflictions. I will be their secure refuge during life and above all in death. I will bestow abundant blessings upon all their undertakings. Sinners will find in my heart the source of infinite ocean of mercy. Lukewarm souls shall become fervent. Fervent souls shall quickly mount to high perfection. I will bless every place in which an image of my sacred heart is exposed and honored. I will give to priests the gift of touching the most hardened hearts. Those who shall promote this devotion shall have their names written in my heart. And then the last promise, the 12th promise, has a lot of very tangible, accessible takeaway points. Where he says, I promise you in the excessive mercy of my heart that my all-powerful love will grant to all those who receive Holy Communion On the first Friday in nine consecutive months, the grace of final perseverance. They shall not die in my disgrace, nor without receiving their sacraments. My divine heart shall be their safe refuge in this last moment.
1: It's beautiful. And it really does speak to what it means to be devoted to the Sacred Heart. This notion of the consecutive first Fridays for nine months and receiving communion on them, there's a little bit of context here that might help. So at the time, because of this, almost obsessive concern with the justice of god and our own unworthiness people were terrified to go to communion and so the church had to constantly do things to try to step in and so at one point in the middle ages they actually passed a rule you know church council i believe it was the council of vienne passed a rule requiring catholics to receive communion at least once a year because jesus gave us this sacrament so we could receive it now by all means if you're in a state of mortal sin, you can't receive communion. Right. But the solution there isn't to just go through your life not, not receiving communion Jesus. and then dying of mortal right. sin. Awful, the solution yeah. is to get to confession and sort your life out.
0: It's also important to note, too, that like all these promises or these devotions, Margaret Mary lived out in her own life as well. And so she requested from her mother superior, she was a sister in the, visit, the order of the visitation, and she requested to receive communion on the first Fridays. And it was something that she had to fight for, which, yeah, makes sense much more in that context of, like, this wasn't something that was regular. Like, reading through, it was like, why would you have to push for that?
1: Right. At the time, you had to actually announce ahead of time your intention to receive communion. The priests didn't just eyeball the number of people in the church and then have enough hosts ready mm-hmm. like happens today. I mean, today, maybe we've gone to the extreme of people right. receiving when they shouldn't. But we need to recognize that this is the end of a very long movement of the pendulum away from an uh, almost terror at the Blessed Sacrament, which is not what Jesus has called us to. No.
0: Let's go back to to a instance in christ's life where this really starts the garden of gethsemane and how devotion to the sacred heart really sees this biblical passage in a new light
1: yeah so i mean i think that jesus really reveals this when he he talks to saint margaret mary um he has that great quotation where he says make reparation for the ingratitude of men spend an hour in prayer to appease divine justice to implore mercy for sinners to honor me to console me for my bitter suffering when abandoned by my apostles, when they did not watch one hour with me. And so, a couple things here. First, it's a recognition that we haven't abandoned divine justice. We're not saying, mercy, 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 no justice. Mm -hmm. Rather, Jesus is very clear about the extension of his, you know, the connection uh, between his justice and his mercy. And so, yes, we, we want to appease divine justice, but his justice is that of someone who is very abundantly merciful, mm-hmm. acting according to his merciful, benevolent nature. But I guess another question people might have is why is it even necessary to console the heart of Jesus if he's in heaven?
0: Yeah, so I didn't know about the idea of consoling Jesus' heart till I was a junior in college, and it was at a Bible study. And I remember sitting on the couch and watching, we went through Consoling the Heart of Jesus, this study by Father Michael Gately. And I remember sitting on the couch watching these lectures of Father Michael Gately, and he's like, You have to Christ invites you to console his heart and being so frustrated with that. And thinking, like, wait, what? Like, I thought that I could just come into chapel and lay all of my problems at the feet of Jesus and let him deal with it and just walk away. And so I think it's so beautiful that Christ invites us also, like, it's a friendship into an intimacy with him. And in a friendship and in an intimacy, there's not a use, like the opposite of love is a use. And so we're not using Jesus and like, here's all of our our things, fix our lives, but also recognizing his humanity and the friendship that we're called to enter into him with and how there's a consolation that comes comes through that. So Father Michael Gately says it much more beautiful than I can. He says, quote, the notion of consoling the heart of Jesus has sometimes been presented in a way that makes our Lord seem overly effeminate, as if he's emotionally fragile or filled with self-pity. What he revealed to St. Faustina, however, is that he sorrowed in the garden and the cross, and in a mysterious way, sorrows from compassion even now, not out of unrequited love as such, but because he foresaw, and sees now, that by refusing to accept and return his love, souls were thereby harming themselves. In other words, the Lord Jesus has sorrow not for his own sake, but for ours, for all the blessings were missing and throwing away.
1: This is, I think, one of the most often misunderstood things in Christianity. So people who are objecting to Christianity or maybe to religion in general will say, "Oh, what a small and petty God who insists you can only worship Him and He's a jealous God and He, you know, fill in the blanks." And so the picture that's often painted is of a, a really insecure God, but that's not it at all. Like when your parents don't tell you, like tell you not to put a fork in the light socket. It's not because they're really jealous for you to have all the fun and they don't. (laughs) It's because they love you and care about you and don't want you to do something stupid. Right. And so it is here with the sacred heart of Jesus. He's sorrowing in the garden, not in a selfish way. Although by all means, given the agony that he foresaw, it'd be totally understandable for him to just mourn the fact that he was going to, as a totally innocent man, be tortured and executed. But more than that, is the fact that these other people are going to suffer. Now, this isn't just some Catholic devotion. We see this in a profound way on the road to Calvary. When the women of Jerusalem stop and he says, "Weep not for me, but for yourselves, he's telling them, I'm not the loser here. Like the cross is ultimately a victory. But those who watch it or who hear about it and turn away from it, those who embrace a life of sin, they're the ones who are losing. And he's not like, Smugly like, ha-ha, I've defeated you. He's like, I want heaven for you, but you keep choosing hell. It's a genuine tragedy. And that's what breaks his heart. So all of that's going to be connected to our ability to make reparation to the Sacred Heart. You know, you just mentioned Father Michael Gately emphasizes this, and he connected it to St. Faustina. But it's something that the popes have picked up. Uh, So, for example, there's a, a tremendous encyclical from 1928... Uh, Miserandissimus Redemptor. It's by Pope Pius XI. If you were to Google Pope Pius XI, 1928, Sacred Heart, you'll be able to get that without me having to spell for you, Miserandissimus Redemptor. But in it, he's talking about this notion. He's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and reparations of the Sacred Heart. So here's the picture that he paints. He says that the chief agony of Christ in the Garden, as you just said, are the foreseen sins of men. It's not going to be the lashes, it's not going to be dying, it's not going to be embarrassing himself in front of like his followers or any of that. No. It's knowing all the people who turn away from him. But also, if you remember, in the account of the garden, there's the angel who comes and presents him uh, like a chalice with mercy. So there's a comforting angel in the garden. And so... That, he tells us, are all these acts of reparation. Pope Pius XI, he's explaining that's what this means. That just as foreseeing all of the bad stuff and the wicked stuff is what breaks his heart. All of these genuine acts of love, of virtue, that's what gives glory to God, even now. Yeah. Because he isn't stuck in the same way we are in time. Right. So he saw in the garden, every one of us, you, me, everyone listening to this, And so he knew what it was that was genuinely tragic in their lives and how they acted, how we acted, but also what was noble, what was beautiful, what was great, and what was cause for divine rejoicing. So here's how Pope Pius XI put it. Now if, because of our sins also, which were as yet in the future, but were foreseen, the soul of Christ became sorrowful unto death, it cannot be doubted that then to Already he derived somewhat of solace from our reparation, which was likewise foreseen, when there appeared to him an angel from heaven, that's Luke 22:43, in order that his heart, oppressed with weariness and anguish, might find consolation. And so even now, even now, in a wondrous yet true manner, we can and ought, to console that most sacred heart, which is continually wounded by the sins of thankless men. Since, as we also read in the sacred liturgy, Christ himself, by the mouth of the psalmist, complains that he is forsaken by his friends. And then he quotes what we said earlier. Mm -hmm. My heart hath expected reproach and misery, and I look for one that would grieve together with me, But there was none. And for one that would comfort me, and I found none. So that's the situation our Lord is in. He's abandoned by all of his followers. He's abandoned by all of his friends. But that's also the opportunity that you and I have. To be a friend of Jesus in that hour. To live every day, every moment of every day, in a way that gives authentic glory to him.
0: Yeah, it's easy to think of the crucifixion as this dot on a timeline, to think that happened in the past. Nothing that I do right now can console Jesus' heart. Like, Christ's crucifixion exists outside of our timeline, like you said. And so just like we can add to the weight of the cross with our sins, we also can take away from the weight from his heart by consoling him. Um, a God, yeah, a God who isn't bound by
1: time. And it is. I mean, it's genuinely a two-way street. The church takes very seriously these 12 promises made to St. Margaret Mary. Mm-hmm. Now, we should mention that the appearances to St. Gertrude and the appearances to St. Margaret Mary, these are, strictly speaking, private revelation. Right. They are church-approved, meaning the church has investigated them, found them reliable and trustworthy, and there's nothing in them contrary to the faith. But no Christian is bound to believe that any private revelation has happened after the end of the New Testament, after the end of the revelation of Christ And then, you know, as it was transmitted through his apostles, there's no new public revelation that, you know, you are bound to believe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. You are not bound to believe St. Margaret Mary.
0: This is like uh, in reference to like what we call the deposit of faith.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, the church has clearly put a great esteem on them. Even though St. Gertrude is not very famous today, she's actually St. Gertrude the Great. Yeah. She's the only female saint. To have the great. There's only, I think, five saints that are called the great. Mm -hmm. And she's one of them. Mm -hmm. And so that's a pretty high amount of trust that the church has put. And we do know infallibly that both of these women are in heaven. So they're not purposely leading people astray. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, you can accept or reject uh, these apparitions and the particulars of them. But I think the 12 promises are good. So I think, you know, like you said before, Chloe love is a two-way street so just as we shouldn't just go and say hey god here are all my problems thanks see you later right he's not doing that to us right either he's right. not saying hey i'm sad console <sighs> my heart all right see you later no he's inviting us to do what's best for us and that makes him happy just like a parent who's grieved over the misbehavior of their kids The best thing you can do for them is to shape up if you're the misbehaving kid. Or, you know, maybe one of the kids is misbehaving, but another one does something extraordinarily beautiful. And that can console their heart. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about here. Not, you know, as you said in the great Michael Gately quote, not some sort of emotional neediness on the part of our Lord. But in exchange for that, in exchange for just doing what we ought to be doing anyway, we're given these 12 promises. And what it's showing us is that doing the right thing actually does pay off mm-hmm. both here and hereafter talking
0: about like why we need the sacred heart right now i think it's easy to get wrapped up in this idea that devotion to the sacred heart is something that well, that's old-fashioned or these are pictures that i saw hanging on my grandma's you know on her wall in her house when i went to visit her as a kid but there's this great quote from father william most he writes for ewtn and he says without that divine love we wouldn't exist at all nor would we have been redeemed for to love is to will the good of another for the other's sake. Like God wills and loves us into existence with his sacred heart. And so devotion to the sacred heart is really intertwined in like believing in that is is intertwined into our Catholic faith.
1: Yeah. I mean, remember, if you believe in the incarnation, you believe in the sacred heart.
0: Yep. Jesus has everything
1: else is details. Right. And you know, if you were to love another person, you'd want to do things that that please them Hmm. on a human level, on an emotional level. You wouldn't want to be just awful to them all the time. You wouldn't want to upset them all the time or make them, you know, terrifically unhappy. And so in that sense, because Christ is fully human, um, all of that still applies. Mm
0: -hmm. And I think we've been talking about this since the beginning, like the mission of this podcast is to invite people into a friendship with God. And if anything for the Sacred Heart, it's just an authentic invitation into a friendship with Jesus.
1: You know, there's this brilliant line at the Last Supper where Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves, Mm -hmm. I call you friends. And that line... We don't think about how scandalous it is. Because in the ancient world, they had a recognition that you could only really be friends with an equal. The power imbalance is too great for the fullness of friendship to really exist. And so the question was, how could Jesus possibly call us friends? And Aquinas in the Summa talks about this, that he creates a sort of equality between himself and us. And he does this first. In the incarnation by taking on our nature. And second, through what's called divinization, where he elevates us to become partakers of the divine nature. He becomes like us so that we can become like him. So that we can really be friends. That is a beautiful and profound message. Yeah. And it's one that recognizes the mystery at the core of the incarnation, which is that humanity can somehow coexist with divinity. That one person can be both human and divine, reveals radical new vistas to us about what it means to be God and about what it means to be man.
0: John Paul II is the patron saint of this podcast, and in a quote he talks about this relationship with Christ that we're invited into, and he writes, quote, "...the heart of Christ must be recognized as the heart of the church. It is he who calls us to conversion, to reconciliation. It is he who leads pure hearts and those hungering for justice along the way of the Beatitudes." It is He who achieves the warm communion of the members of the one body. It is He who enables us to adhere to the good news and to accept the promise of eternal life. It is He who sends us out on mission. The heart to heart with Jesus broadens the human heart on a global scale, and that's the end of the quote. I just love that. Like I, I call in like my like conversation and vocabulary like good, deep, meaningful conversations with people are heart to hearts, and like Jesus is inviting us into a heart to heart with Him.
1: Yeah, and a heart to heart that changes our hearts. Right. To become more like his heart. Yeah, all the different levels of the heart to hearts It's beautiful. And it's so missional, too. Yes. It's, it's the idea that when you have this profound encounter with Jesus and have a heart more like his, you're going to want to act more like him, including going out to the world. You know, if, if you're going to Mass every day, or even just every week, if you're somebody who considers yourself a faithful Catholic, but you're not sharing the faith in any way or doing anything to help spread the gospel or to to be like Christ to others. You need to revisit that relationship and maybe get deeper in relationship with the heart of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Allow your heart to be transformed, uh, to become more like his, and and then see where it goes. I think you'll see that you become more uh, evangelistic. I think you'll become more eager to share the gospel because that's sort of uh, the great quote that I believe it's Jeremiah has where he says, that he tries to keep silent, but he can't. He just keeps yeah. crying out. That notion comes from a deep intimacy uh, with Jesus.
0: Um, a way to start off in your your day with a divine intimacy with the Lord is a prayer we're going to talk about next, which is the morning offering. Which, if you pray the morning offering, I've done this. It's easy to sink into the trap of, like, it's just a morning offering. Like, there's really, like, it's just a prayer to start my day. I, a blog post that you've written talks about how this prayer is actually pretty controversial when it comes to the Sacred Heart, when it comes to the Catholic Church.
1: Right. So let's talk about what. Let's share the prayer, and then break it down line by line. So the prayer goes like this: "O Jesus, through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I offer you my prayers, works, joys, and suffering of this day. In union with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, I offer them for all the intentions of your Sacred Heart, the salvation of souls." Reparation for sins, the reunion of all Christians. I offer them for the intentions of your bishops and of all apostles of prayer, and in particular for those recommended by our Holy Father this month. Amen. For one, you're praying to Jesus. Jehovah's Witnesses, but even some more mainstream Protestants, reject the idea that we should pray to Jesus. Yeah,
0: we talked about Mormons last week,
1: Yeah. I mean Mormons I would say are outside of the Christian normal bounds, but Yeah, so there are plenty of people who consider themselves Christian who would still say, whoa, hold the phone, don't pray to Jesus. Second, we're praying through the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Now, that's obviously much more controversial. Most Protestants are great with the idea of praying to Jesus, but if you start praying to Jesus through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, they immediately get uncomfortable. Because it's this idea uh, that it it somehow is going to take you away from Jesus, even though you're praying through Mary. Uh, Third, you know... We're offering all of our prayers, works, joys, and sufferings in union with the holy sacrifice of the Mass throughout the world, which, again, uh, Protestants would reject. They reject the Mass, particularly the idea of the Mass as a sacrifice through which we can join our offerings to Jesus' perfect sacrifice. So that whole notion, that whole spiritual power that we have, they they don't realize that we have it. They would deny it. Uh, Fourth, we're offering these for all the intentions of the sacred heart. And that's going to be a phrase that most Protestants are very uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Even a lot of Catholics are uncomfortable with. Yeah. It. it seems like we're just hacking Christ's body up. But the Psalms, you'll see, you know, Scripture speaks of the heart. And so when we talk about the heart of Jesus. We're not saying the heart acting radically separately from the rest of the body of Christ. Right. And then finally... Uh, you know we're offering these for the intentions of the Pope, Does and it get more
0: Catholic than that? we reference
1: Mary, we reference the Mass, we reference the Sacred Heart, and so yeah, obviously this prayer in a lot of ways is is going to make a lot of especially non-Catholics uncomfortable, but it's still important, and I say this not to be needlessly provocative with it, but this or something like it is a really good way of making a little act of reparation. Mm-hmm. We talked earlier that this is one of the ways we can, right now, make Holy Thursday a little better. That's a profound mystery. That you and I, every one of us, have the ability to impact Holy Week. Not Holy Week 2018. Not Holy Week 2019. The original Holy Week. Right. Like, this could be
0: a podcast in and of itself, but, like, just the idea of redemptive suffering. Our suffering has merit to, yeah, relieve the suffering of Jesus's heart.
1: I think that needs to be a podcast. Yes, agreed. <laughs> uh, of itself. But, yeah, there is this notion. Like one of the big mysteries that vexes us is, like, what is the deal with mm-hmm. pain and suffering in this world? And it's something that every culture has grappled with. And I think that the... The biblical mode of examining it is gorgeous, but in a way that's still very frustrating, because suffering is never totally explained away. We're sort of given a little piece of the puzzle and then invited to step into it. And this is one great way to do that. We unite our sufferings with those of Jesus. Now remember what we just said. He becomes human so that we can share in his divinity, his divine nature, to become partakers of the divine nature, to use the phrase St. Peter uses. Mm-hmm. He wants to share things with us. One of the things he wants to share with us, maybe unfortunately, it's the cross. But it means that all of the sufferings you were going to have anyway, you can now unite them with Jesus who's suffering for you. And now you're no longer going it alone. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden light. Well, what is his yoke? It's the cross. Now, why is it easy? Because a yoke is something that two oxen, a pair of oxen, would shoulder together. It would be too much for one of them. So it has the other one there. Well, who do we bear the cross with? Who is in the yoke with us? It's Christ himself. And so in that sense, that's why it's easy. That's why it's light. And that's why these reparations to the Sacred Heart are so beautiful. Because it really is the two of you. Uh, being united in this suffering, in this mystery.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's inviting, yeah, you want to walk down the road to have a heart to heart with him.
1: Yeah, yeah. exactly.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. If you, people are listening, people are wondering how to dive into devotion to the sacred heart in their own lives, the takeaways that you give them, any practical tips?
1: I would say that it's an extension of the incarnation. I would say it's a reminder that we can't become so hung up on God's justice that we lose sight of his mercy. hmm and I would say that it's ultimately a reminder that Christ wants to share everything with us. So it's a tremendous promise beyond what we can even fathom.
0: Great. Want to close the episode of the prayer?
1: Glory be to, to the, the Father, Father and, to to the the Son, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit.
0: As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.
1: And then the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.